Hi everyone, it is Harmony. I am super stoked about this episode. My friend Elena comes on and she is magnificent. Before we get started, I just wanted to give you all a heads up. If You Leave Me discusses a lot of mature themes. In this episode, among those themes that we discuss are child abuse, domestic violence, and suicide. I have included links to resources if you are experiencing any of these things in the show notes. I also just wanted to give you guys a heads up and let you know that the audio for this episode is a little bit off. (laughs) We tried our best, and I apologize. I still think it's definitely worth a listen. All right, bye! And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! And welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. We are here with a super duper special guest. (laughs) Ah, hello everyone. I'm Alina. (laughs) Nice to meet you so much. Like, I miss Harmony so much. And I miss America. (laughs) Thank you for, thank you for like, um, inviting me. Oh, it's lovely to have you. It's lovely to see your face again. Oh, me too. For those who are listening, Aleta is a friend of mine who I met in New York City, and she's now back home in Korea. And we invited her on to talk about this book that I originally read with her in a book club located in New York City. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So today we're talking about If You Leave Me by Crystal Hana Kim. And so let's just give everyone a quick introduction to Elena. She's a friend of mine who lives in Korea now, but used to live in New York City. How would you describe yourself? <laughs> I'm currently unemployed <laughs> because it's a bad economy. So yeah, you can't expect to have good jobs now. So <laughs> so I defend myself because it's bad economy and now I'm like looking for jobs and going to interviews every other week and I graduated University of Seoul I studied international relations and economics and yeah that's me I think and I was working in New York for for, uh, six months and then I came back to Korea and I'm really missing the atmosphere in New York, you know. New York is so diverse and young. Yeah, and that's my life. That's lovely. That's lovely. It's not that great right now, I have to say. Um, New York's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that is lovely. Yes, and it is a bad economy. I concur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so can you tell us are your top five favorite books? Oh, Top five favorite books. I'll I'll say like my number one has to be Harry Potter, <laughs> and um, number two would be like you. I read I read a lot of nonfiction, so like those essays I like to read, 
and so there is a uh, Korean books which is about um, youth <laughs> being young and being painful uh, I think those are my top two books and I can't think of other ones I don't really read books right now because I'm too busy looking for jobs so yeah that is fair that is very fair what was your initial impression of if you leave me I think we read it almost a year ago yeah that's right but like my first impression was like I felt like being in a Korean literature class because in Korean literature there's so many of those kind of books that is based on like Korean war or like Korean war and independence and that stuff and like colonization and Japan so there in Korean literature class we learn a lot about them so it felt like Korean liter literature class so it was nice yeah yeah it was nice to read a Korean literature class in English <laughs> that's super duper cool yeah it's, that's so interesting because I feel like I was talking to Maggie earlier when we were trying to map out this episode and I was like I don't think I know anything about the Korean War. So it this is the first book I've ever read that's really talked about it at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Korean literature was like really had a lot of influence from the war and colonization. So basically like all of them are based on those kind of um eras. Yeah. That's very true. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, so that makes sense. Maggie, do you want to give a summary of the book? Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. So, oh, there's just so much to talk about. Essentially, we are following uh, a little family unit as they deal with being refugees because of the Korean War and then kind of what happens to them afterwards and how the war sort of follows them all for the rest of their life and the decisions that they made during that time. Uh, follows them for the rest of their life. And it's really about the struggle of one woman kind of coming to terms with the fact that she has extraordinarily limited choices in her life because she's a woman and also because her refugee status really sort of derailed any other options that she could have had to, you know, kind of go to school or do other things with her life. So it's the the book takes place over 15 years about um, and just kind of like chronicles her journey navigating family and motherhood in a very difficult time. Yeah, that's a very good summary. That was much better than what I had written. <laughs> yeah. So where do we want to start with this book? You were talking a little bit, Aleta, about how it like reminded you of being back in Korean literature class. Um, my impression was like, wow, this is really dark, and I wish there was more female solidarity. Um, Maggie, what was your first impression? I, I just agree that I think that I felt it was really, really dark, especially the ending. The last third of the book takes a, a turn that is, it goes from being like, wow, this is a depressing story, but like, I get it, I see what's happening, and then we take like a real hard left turn, and there's no hope left for anyone, and it's just sad. So that was really my takeaway, was that this was a very sad and difficult book to read. One of the reasons why I asked Elena on was because when we read this book in the Feminist Book Club in New York City, we we came out of the, the discussion and Elena was talking a little bit about how her mother and grandmother had experienced similar stories to our protagonist 
I believe we pro pronounced your name Hemi. Is that correct? Yes, Hemi. 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 Okay. Hemi. Yes. So our protagonist, Hemi, she was talking about how her, you, you were talking about how your grandmother and mother had similar experiences. And at the time, that seemed so wild to me. But then as I was looking into the Korean War and found out it was only in 1950, I guess that makes sense. So do yeah. you want to elaborate yeah. on that a little? So like, I know this this is a novel, so it can be like over overrated, overestimated. Like uh, the the darkness can be like too much, but I think this this is this isn't only for this era. This is this has a historical con context, and still we are influenced because about. The, it's about the role of women in East Asian society. You have to have you have to have a son, not a daughter, and you get abort you get abortion if you if you have a girl. So Hemi like struggles the struggles about she has to have a boy in her family, and she only has daughters. So like that's still a thing in Korea. So. Many girls were aborted in the nineties. So oh, wow. Yeah, so like it's not hard to find those family that has like daughter, 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 then then son. <laughs> so they had children until they got a son. So my mother was the fourth daughter and then she had a younger brother. <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was kind of similar. That's wild. That's I, I can't, I mean, I guess I, I know of things happening like that anecdotally, but less severely here, like people trying for a boy, but it's just because they want a boy, not necessarily because of the societal context associated to that. Yeah, because um, yeah. uh, people think that like girls just go to another family if they get married, but like guys, they're like a family forever. So they think girls aren't that useful. Ah, uh, I see. I would say that's not, like, Hemi, though, proves that she is super useful within this novel. Like, right from the beginning, she's yeah. kind of the superhero. Yeah. Uh-huh, that's right. She does everything. <laughs> she does do everything. Mm -hmm. So what, one of the things that really struck me about this book was the the book starts off with Hemi being a refugee. And she talks about how she lives separately from the other people who are also displaced by war. Mm -hmm. And when she's an adult, she still feels that that separateness and that isolation. And I don't know, what do you guys both think about that aspect? Like, is that, I, I, I mean, I assume that none of us have been refugees before. So we probably can't speak to that experience. But like, how does that isolation connect to the displacement? I wanna um, I want uh, Maggie's opinion first. <laughs> I think that the isolation was purposeful, and it, it was you know at the beginning of the novel, it was very much a, a safety thing and a safety reason that they lived away from the other families, but then also created a very insulated life for Hemi, I think, where the only people we saw her interact with regularly was, was her mother, with whom she had a rather fraught relationship most of the time. 
and her younger brother who she was taking care of. And then these two whirlwind boys, essentially, who are kind of on the cusp of manhood and are kind of pulling her from direction to direction. And I feel like that isolation and the insulation inside that little family unit that she's kind of in for herself really is something that she's unable to shake throughout the entire novel. As an adult, she doesn't have very many friends, and she is at odds with a lot of people. Uh, And I think that while the separation initially is for a very good and practical reason, the emotional impacts of it on her throughout the rest of her life really sort of stay throughout the novel in the sense that she's never really able to escape, I think, that sense of isolation. And the reasons change. Like Later in her life, it's because she's suffering from domestic abuse and a lack of stability and things like that. But that theme for her stays constant. Um, what I think yeah, I, I I can't agree more. And like, what I thought about it when like Maggie talked about isolation, this isolation makes women to fall in love. You know, like, you know, she's so lonely and she has nowhere to hang on to. So uh, I think love is this kind of situation makes her love more and makes her throughout more weak. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I remember you bringing this point up in Feminist Book Club. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, I wonder if it makes her... So what Elena's saying, just to kind of like rephrase, just so I can understand better, you're saying that like her need for a man makes her more weak. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's why she goes through the abuse and like marriage, whatever it is. <laughs> That's true, but she also has, like, all this societal expectation and, like, her mother pushing her to marry. Like, she has to marry, ooh, is it Jisoo? Is that her Yeah, Jisoo, yes, yes. Yeah, so she has to marry him in order to save her little brother's life, essentially, so that he can get medical treatment. I don't know. I think that, I think that Kimi would have benefited from, like, having a more solid girl pal system but i don't know if like her dream of love necessarily makes her weak or her need for a man because i think that i I don't know what the alternative would be in her case would there have been an alternative for her to live without a man do you guys think i don't think so like not getting married in that kind of era is it means like you're 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 weird like you're you're somebody else i kind of get the impression though that she made life more complicated for herself at the beginning and that potentially she wouldn't have been pushed into marrying so early if she had made different choices when she was 16 and on the one hand I feel like you can't really fault a 16 year old for like falling in love the best they can you know at 16 and like wanting to live that dream but on the other hand I think that there is a sort of, I just wish she made different choices, I guess, you know? I don't know if I if it necessarily makes her weak in my eyes. What specific choices are you talking about? Well, just getting involved in this, like, love triangle to begin with, essentially. Like, if she had kind of kept her head down just a little bit more, her mother wouldn't have been pushing her to marry in the first place. Like, because it wasn't like she was going out there trying to necessarily 
seek after marriages for her, right? Like it just sort of fell into her lap and then sort of the current took her away. But then if that happened, we wouldn't have had a story at all. So, yeah. I don't know. I think I think young Kimi is brave for falling in love. Like I think having that desire in of itself is brave. I think it becomes problematic when she grows older and she has this like idealized version of what her life could have been if she were just with another guy. When I think that we would all agree, like you can't, you know, your life can't necessarily just be better because you're with someone better. Yeah. I also think that brave doesn't necessarily discount the fact that it was maybe still kind of a, a dumb situation <laughs> to be in anyway. It's like That's fair. Um, I also wanted to, on the theme of isolation that we were talking about earlier, I wanted to talk about how that isolation seems to transfer from Himi on to her children, even though they're in a different generation and in a different world. Like, they have not experienced growing up as refugees. And what did you guys make of that? The fact that her children still have that social isolation. Can you, um, can you summar- summarize that again? I didn't get it yes. right. Yeah. That's okay. Don't worry. Himi, when she's an adult, her children are also isolated. Even though they've never been refugees, they seem to feel awkward in their school places and with each other. And they have some trouble, it seems, making like genuine friendships with other women as well. As does Himi. She she doesn't have any adult grown-up friends. Soli has friends with other girls, but she they're not like she doesn't they're not like genuine friends. Mm-hmm. They're not close or or trusted or trustworthy. Why do you think that is? Like why do you think even though her children live in a different time and don't have to experience the same hardships that Himi experienced growing up, they are still isolated? I think it's because, like, as a woman, they are all women, you know, like, they're girls. And they, in deep inside, they have desires and they have, like, wishes to choose things, but the society doesn't make them choose. So I don't think, like, any, any girl with a, um, um, with a decent mind would feel so close with society even i don't really feel close with korean society and how would they feel like they would be like they have seen how they haven't been raised without jisoo and they have seen their mother being painful with her with her life so i think it is it is kind of affected they kind of expected to be isolated because you can't really be connected with society if those kind of things are happening and those kind of things are have nobody thinks they're problematic it's just a okay thing for everybody so i think being feeling isolated is kind of an expected thing you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah no that makes a lot of sense that was very beautifully worded yeah, no, I'm just processing. You're saying that women can't build, women with the desire to build solidarity or who see what's going on that's wrong can't can't build the solidarity because they don't buy into the system? Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. You know, like, if if your friends think, friends think 
those kind of things are okay and you think those kind of things aren't okay, you can't really trust your friends and tell them that you think it's different. So yeah, I think being isolated is kind of an expected thing. That's very interesting and gives me a new sort of respect for Himi, I think. I mean, that's something I think that we've all experienced in our life where we're like, where we see something that is problematic and the rest of society doesn't seem to care. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, the reason why I miss you so much <laughs> is because like, we, I could talk, talk about this with you, but in Korea, I don't have a lot of friends that I can talk about with, with like feminism and equality and that kind of stuff. Because people aren't, people think I'm weird. <laughs> so yeah, so that's why I miss America and like New York and Harmony so much. <laughs> I miss you too. I miss your yeah. sweet little face. Aw, thank you. <laughs> you are always welcome to talk about feminism with me. Or Aww, come on thank the, you. the podcast and talk Aww. about feminism with us. Oh, <laughs> okay. Maggie, do you want to touch on another topic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Something that I felt was really a feminist topic that was brought up consistently throughout the novel, I think, was Hemi's extreme desire for family planning and family planning tools. At one point, she's arguing with Jisoo, and it's after her second daughter is born. And she's like, I don't want to have more kids because I don't want to feel the way I did after I gave birth ever again. And they're like having this big argument and he's like, this isn't something that you get to choose. And she says, this is the only thing I get to choose about. And even then he manages to just like take that away from her. And I, that really, that theme really hurt me because I think also if she had been given more choice and more control over that aspect of her life, I really feel like things could have gone differently from her for her at the end of the novel where like she could have felt like she had more control over her life and her body and her choices and a lot of what she suffered from seems to be related to or at least initially stemmed from postpartum depression that she experienced very severely after giving birth she spends so much time throughout the entire novel talking about the fact that initially her body doesn't feel like her own and then eventually that her entire life doesn't feel like her own, that it really just seems like such a rallying cry to me that everyone deserves to be able to make those choices for their own body and for their own family. And that like where that choice should ultimately lie is the person who has to go through all of that, you know, who like has to carry that baby and then ostensibly be its primary t- caretaker for the first couple of months. And who has to go through all those biological changes, whether you're a cis woman or a, tra- or a trans or, you know, like that to me, there's lots about this book that deals with feminist topics, but that was one of the strongest threads for me. So I'm, I'm interested in what either of you thought of that, or if I just saw that thread so strongly because it's something I do with at work. Do you have any thoughts about that? What is um, family planning like in Korea currently? Like, I think... Uh, we have the different perspective because, like, in Korea, we think the group and the society is much, much important than the individual, and that that's also 
uh, into family, so family is more important than the individual, so you have to sacrifice for your family and make choices for your family, not for yourself. So this is kind of normal to sacrifice for your family, and especially the daughters always sacrifice for the family. Daughters are really kind, <laughs> I think, and they, they care about the... If, if someone's sick in your family, the daughter always cares about the hospital stuff and whatever it is. And the sons don't really care. They don't really give money. And if you have a lot of money as a daughter, you have to give them to your younger brother. <laughs> and for your for college tuition, that happens a lot. <laughs> so yeah, like family comes first in East Asian society. That's very interesting. So I took, I was going to go to China uh, before COVID happened. And I took a class that was teaching me about how to teach in a foreign country like China. And that was something that was brought up that Western society is very individualistic, which is something I should have known, but didn't consciously know. And um, Asian society in general tends to be more about the collective. It's interesting to hear that because Maggie and I, as Western feminists, are very entrenched with like media telling us, or not, I don't know, the, the idea of feminism in the United States in the second wave really was surrounded about, around family planning and around like women having autonomy over their own bodies. And that is something that we still struggle with today. So it's interesting to see that perspective as being like, well, it's not necessarily just about the lack of autonomy over her body, it's just that we care about the, the whole unit. Yeah, I don't know, what do you think about that, Maggie? Can you rephrase the end of it? <laughs> I was with you and then I lost the question. I guess, well, Elena is saying that in, in her society, it's more, women are expected to care more for the unit, is, is first of all what you said, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And then also, they're less individualistic. Like in general, people are expected to care less about their individual selves and more about the greater good. So that's kind of, I think, how she was relating the family planning aspect that you were talking about. Like the idea is it's not about your body. It's about the greater good. But we in the West have a really individualized and in, in, in general, like outside of feminism, we're very much about like personal fulfillment and liberty. <laughs> so I was wondering, like knowing now that a lot of Asian societies are about the collective good, if that changes your reading about Himi's family planning. I I mean, that was something I, I was aware of, you know, just like as a cultural difference. I don't think it changes my reading of it in the sense that, like, I'm unsurprised, right? Like, in 1950, family planning wasn't even really that much of a thing in the United States either. Like, collectively as a world at this time, that was just kind of, like, what was expected. It was much more like you were you were a brooder as a woman. <laughs> you were, you were, you were going to produce. Um, but I think that the way that family planning conversations probably happen in South Korea are very different than the way they happen in the United States because of that. I, you know, like I, in my, like I'm married and we eventually want to have kids, but in my little family, like that is 
entirely my choice. Like that's something that my husband and I agreed on that like that's just completely up to me and when I'm ready and like what we're up to as long as he's also feeling ready to go. And I imagine that like that wouldn't work for every woman potentially especially not somebody who was raised in a South Korean culture like about family and sacrifice I guess my thing about family planning is that like I'm unsurprised that this is how her story went for a variety of reasons I just see it as a reason that like I'm glad now that more women around the world have more power over that in whatever context that means whether it means having more power within or within society as a whole as we move towards more access to contraceptions and things like that. I don't think that with anything, there's like a one-size-fits-all approach or mentality that's going to fit the entire world. It just makes me sad, I guess, for all of the women around the world that this was their story, that they weren't given a choice, and that things went badly for them because of it, you know? Yeah, because Himi does very clearly state that she doesn't want to have a child like it, it is her direct desire it's not like she's necessarily feeling guilty about this i mean she might be feeling guilty but like she does clearly state that this is not something she wants and then is told that she has to anyway which is interesting yeah i don't know i want to get into something elena was saying about the labor that women experience more in terms of like family and emotional labor and having to contribute to the collective good. I saw that a lot in this story with Hayimi and Hayonki's relationship, and then also with Soli and her little sisters. Both of them sacrificed their own lives to, to care for their younger siblings, but they both feel immense jealousy about it. And so I'm wondering... Like, is that normal? Like, to feel that sort of jealousy and resentment about having to give up your own life to care for your family? I think, like, any choice you make, if you choose to um, be your younger brother or sister, uh, you will feel jealous. And if you don't help your younger brother or sister, you'll feel guilty about it because people are brainwashed. People are brainwashed to, like, help. and not care about themselves and care about their family they're so like brainwashed and they think it, it's just a deed to do something like that so it's either jealousy or guilty so i think they just choose jealousy that makes sense it's a trap it's not a win-win it's a no-win it's a lose-lose yeah yeah <laughs> it's a lose-lose you can't choose anything wow i think that's a really point what you said about the fact that people choose jealousy because I think that's really true and I think that a lot of times that happens because when you feel guilt it's because there's outside pressure guilting you into feeling that way like it's not necessarily because you feel bad because you individually felt bad right like you probably do it yourself it's the out it's the outside pressure so I feel like when people choose jealousy it's because it's easier to just kind of wage a war within yourself right than it is to wage a war against societal norms i've never really thought about it like that before that was a really interesting point yes elena's full of them <laughs> this is why i like <laughs> to have her on yes. interesting and unique perspective and it's it's mind-blowing it's good all right, we talked about motherhood. Do you guys want to talk about identity? 
Maggie, do you want to talk about identity? I think for me, one of the most compelling aspects of identity throughout this is that all all of our main characters go through an experience that strips them of power and privilege that they normally would have had if they hadn't been displaced by war, essentially. Especially Jisoo, who we know was a very, very wealthy person and came from a, a very privileged background and really had to change course after the war. But all three of the male characters view all of the like privilege that they have, all of their circumstances is really being very similar to Hemi's throughout the entire novel. And they can't understand the fact that just being a woman, even though they went through such similar experiences, limits her choices and her options about who and what she can be. And they don't see her. They strip her of her voice because of it. To the point where I'm pretty sure in the entirety of part three of the novel, her voice isn't present at all, except for in a letter that she writes. So that aspect of identity I found really compelling. If anyone wants to kind of speak to that aspect a little bit. Wait, wait, wait. So you're talking... Okay. Yeah, I found that really compelling, particularly with Hayonki, because I love me a good little brother, big sis relationship. I found it really disturbing that he goes from hero worshipping Himi who sacrifices everything to him to eventually feeling like she's petty and spiteful and coming up against her and being kind of the antagonist and really sympathizing more with her husband than with her. I don't know. What are your thoughts about it, Elena? Well, I think it's because like, guys only fall in love with guys. <laughs> they don't really love women they just think as a pet <laughs> they kind of like it's i don't know in this era you know like guys don't really love girls they only love themselves and uh other guys um so like i think that's same with hyungi you know like hyungi is thankful he is thankful but he doesn't really love her because she's just uh tool for his life so yeah that's what i think i know it's kind of weird but that's what i feel about misogyny <laughs> that's the whole point of misogyny you know like guys don't really love girls they think them like a pet you know how they love a pet yeah they don't see her as a real person is that what you're saying yeah that's right <laughs> I think that's super true, though, especially in this novel. Like, Jisoo doesn't know Hemi when he marries her and then goes off to war and then comes back and realizes that not only does he not know this girl and doesn't really care that much about her, but also she's never going to meet the platonic ideal of a wife that he had built up in his head. Like, he created this very fictional person that he convinced himself he needed to marry. And then when it all falls apart, it's a massive crash. I agree. Does that also happen in America too? Because like that's kind of like the thing. Like I, when I date guys, they give me a ideal look, and that's the one they're falling in love with, not me. <laughs> so like I try to um try to over overlap the gap, <laughs> but but. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Does that also happen in America? <laughs> it does. It certainly does. I think it's a constant. I think for people who are aware of feminism and misogyny and who see it presently, it's like a constant thing within relationships. It is for me. Um, I didn't. I don't think my first part. I. I don't think I had a partner who like actually saw me and respected me as a human until my current partner. And even then, like I'm constantly evaluating it and challenging him and being like, hey, just to make sure you still see me as a full person, right? (laughs) So, yes, that is definitely a thing in most heterosexual relationships, probably around the world. (laughs) Okay. 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 I get it. Yeah. Um, Maggie said something and I had a point. Oh, right. Okay. So what's his name? Can we, who's her first boyfriend? The the boy she falls in love with. What's his name again? Kang Wang. Am I saying that yeah. right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Sort of. <laughs> when she, I, I want to know if she, you guys think that she genuinely loves him, not just in the beginning, but like as they're grownups, because I think that they both sort of have this idealized version of each other. And so I wonder if that could be, I wonder if that same sort of idea of idealizing somebody or not seeing them as a real person could work for the woman characters in this in this book as well. <laughs> Right, that's that's like totally right. Yeah, if you're a human being, you can idealize anyone, but like at the um at the end, it's so depressing, and like Hemi gets really depressed. So if you're that depressed, I don't think the emotion of love can um can be in your mind because you're if you're so depressed, you don't have the time and time to think about love. If that makes sense. No, I think that does make sense. I think it is definitely more difficult to be in a healthy, to to have a healthy sort of love for somebody when you're experiencing your own sort of baggage. What do you think, Maggie? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that especially by the end, not even by the end, I think really the entire time throughout the relationship, he is just her, her escape, her what if. Uh, I think even at the beginning, like, he takes her away to do the, to, like, go get drunk at these uh, little, like, makeshift bars and stuff. And, like, it's all just a, what if this was my actual life? And what if I could actually do what I wanted? And he gives her a way to taste that, I think. And then it just grows and grows and grows as she hates the situation that she's in more and more. Yeah, it's very sad. I think that's, that's one of the reasons why, um, even though this book is so beautifully written, it's always a hard read for me because it's just so disappointing. And like the, it's so focused on relationships, but the relationships prove so empty, if that makes sense. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about suicide as empowerment. Maggie wrote, frustrating tropes for women. Do you want to explain that, Maggie? <laughs> Oh, uh, there's just historically, at least in Western literature, a really big trend where at the end, the woman dies primarily by suicide. And therefore, she's she's free because she's free from suffering. So it becomes like this weird form of empowerment. When in reality, she's just dead because 
all of these factors have driven her to feel like life isn't worth living anymore, essentially. I'm thinking about The Awakening by Kate Chopin as like really the the example that's coming to my mind right now. But I do think that in this case, not that I would call suicide in any form empowering, and if you were experiencing suicidal thoughts, please reach out to somebody. I do think that this doesn't really play quite in the same way as that trope, because there really isn't any, like, there's no absolutely no romanticiza- romanticization, words are hard, of what she does at the end, and the fact that she does commit suicide, and it really messes up her daughters <laughs> and it really has a negative impact for the rest of her family i think that a place where it's difficult is that her decision to kill herself is the first truly selfish decision she made just for herself the entire novel yeah <laughs> I that's the most selfish decision and the most tragic decision it is, it is. So maybe if she had made more selfish decisions, the maybe the outcome for everyone would have been a little bit better. If she had married the boy she loved, like maybe everyone's life would have been a little bit happier because they wouldn't have to, to deal with this, this lingering pain. Because her pain does automatically affect her daughters and it affects her husband, who's an asshole, but it, it still affects him. And Hyung... <laughs> that her brother <laughs> her brother um ends up dying anyway very young so i don't yeah i don't know as a reader you know as a not as a feminist not as a uh, as a reader i feel kind of catharsis because like it feels like revenge for the family you treated me bad. You can't have me. I'm no one's and then die. So I feel catharsis with the death, actually. I know it's a tragic thing, but like as a reader. No, I get that. I understand that. I, as a reader, have a different perspective, I think, because I mean, I grew up in a single parent household. And so I feel like it's not the same, but I feel like I have some sort of insight into like, how sacrifices that parents make affect children. And I just really felt so sympathetic for her children. Or like, I felt so empathetic for her children. And yeah, I don't know. Like there's a whole, there's a whole scene where she beats Soli. And in the feminist book club, I remember trying to bring it up and everyone was like, they just kind of skimmed over it. And I was like, no, this is important. Like Soli has... She she has a, a time in which she is hurt too. And just because Himi's our main character doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about her pain because Himi should not be doing this. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I have thoughts because like, you know, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, they are not, they don't really get along <laughs> in yeah. Korea. And like, if you, if you, didn't like your mother-in-law you should be kind to your daughter-in-law you know if you were abused by your mother-in-law you have to be kind to your daughter-in-law which is your son's wife Mm -hmm. but they don't do that uh we uh if like if you have abuse from your husband you abuse your daughter because your daughter takes all that 
you know, like because girls are kind and they listen <laughs> while guys are so busy. And so, like, I think if there's a tragic accident or a tragic thing happens, or like if if your um husband cheats or anything, like all the things mess up the girls. I don't know why. <laughs> it's a cycle of abuse. I think I've spoken on the podcast. I don't know if I've actually spoken about this, but I have been adjacent to domestic violence. And so I know a little bit about the domestic violence terms. And that is a thing like they've done studies. That is a thing that happens. You know, there's a comic somewhere or a, com- a comedy skit where like the husband comes home, he beats the wife, the we- wife goes beats and beats the kids, the kids and go, the kids go and beat the dog. And like, that is kind of, yeah, I know. <laughs> She's like, not the dog. That's kind of a thing. So I'm wondering though, Himi is our protagonist. Like, do we hold her accountable for spreading this pain? And in what ways, like, what way is it okay to hold her accountable? If we hold her accountable at all? Well, I, I, I may be biased, but <laughs> I defend Hemi because. <laughs> Because he's just victim of society, I think. You know, there's people that grow to be bad because they're victim of abuse. They, there are people that grow very sad and depressed because of the society and stuff. So I, I can't really blame her. Yeah, it's hard. And she doesn't have, like, resources coming out at her. She doesn't have domestic violence centers telling her, hey, this is a cycle of abuse. Don't beat your kids. (laughs) I was just going to say, I think that also it would be on the thing that I think a reader would want to blame on Hemi is how all of this affects her children. But her children have two parents the entire novel, you know, like it's not, I think that that's really important to think about as well, where it's like, Sure, maybe we can attempt to hold Hemi accountable a little bit for how, you know, like, Soli feels unloved. Um, but Rufu was also there and, like, contributing to all of this. So I feel like it's it's more important to a certain extent to, like, hold them accountable as a unit as parents yeah, for what happens to their children. And then I think... In all other cases, really, she's absolved from blame because she is the victim. (laughs) She doesn't have control, you know? That's true. That's true. So I'm wondering, though, because I agree. I agree that we should hold the parents accountable. And I think, too, it's hard. It's kind of like when people talk about white feminists and how problematic they are and and men don't even enter the conversation, like white men, even though they're like at the, the totem pole of power. It, because, like, they're at the totem pole of power, you know? So, like, they're just so bad that we're, like, just disregarding them. Yeah, I think Jaysu definitely needs to be held accountable, too. I think they both need to be held accountable. But I'm wondering how the the cycle will ever break. I mean, I guess it, it has to do with more agency. Like, hopefully, Hemi's children have more agency than she did. And maybe then they're able to make better decisions. I don't know. Yeah, the, this just cycle is still holding on to 2020. <laughs> yeah, it is. And that's why, though, because we, we like, I don't know. I don't know if there's any way that Hemi could have taken the agency and been like, I'm not going to, I mean, well, A, beat my child, but I'm also going to, like, be nicer to Soli and not compete for, you know, 
uh, what's his name's love against Soli and stuff like that. I don't know. I guess that, yeah, we're able to make those decisions better with the more agency and resources that we have. And so hopefully Soli won't do that to her daughter. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because like, if it was like these times and like if the parents abuse the children because they were abused, I would say like that's so wrong because that's just so wrong because they there's so much help today. But like this kind of era, I, I just don't want to blame her. <laughs> I think that's fair. Okay, do we have anything else we want to touch upon? Did I skip anything? Oh, I was just going to say, I think that the one glimmer, glimmer of hope in the novel, though, is the fact that all four of their children are being set up to have a better life than either of their parents did. While on the one hand, like their family life is clearly unhappy in many ways, I would also say that part of what makes this novel complicated is that I think that the portrayal of domestic violence and domestic abuse is actually probably pretty accurate in the sense that it's not like there's any one singular villain in this situation right or like things are terrible god awful all the time it's a lot more outbursts of things and the girls are all able to find happiness especially in their relationships with each other for the most part and also on top of that, they're all still going to school. So Lee's probably going to go to college. Like, I think that there is a glimmer of hope for the cycle, at least. Get if better. not breaking, it ha- clearly it hasn't. Like, improving, right? Like, conditions are improving, which means that things aren't going to be as bad for the next generation as it was for the last generation. And while I think that as people, we should demand more than that, I do think that it's important as a bare minimum that we see that glimmer of hope here in this novel to be like, okay, but things likely will improve. Yeah, I agree. But like, the tragedy of, of this kind of hope is you need a really big accident, you know, to, for the society to change. Uh, of what, uh, what I feel is that if there's a really big murder case of women or a really big, big crime with women, society tends to change. So you need those kind of red buttons, you know? So that makes hope in a really weird way. It's hard to, like, get people fired up enough to want to change something or, like, make them realize that something is broken unless you have a big catastrophic event. Yeah. I mean, I keep praying that COVID will be the end of capitalism, but who knows? It's it's not big enough, apparently. <laughs> okay, is there anything else we want to touch on, or do is that all of our points? I think we did really good, you guys. <laughs> I think I think that was most of our points. Okay, well, then I guess that we will um, stop recording now. Oh, wait, we have to say what we're reading. So first of all, whoa, 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 wait. Do we think this is a feminist book? Either of you can go first. Yeah, yeah. it's like East Asian society's woman's role in family, and we should go fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer. What do you think, Maggie? I think that coming from my completely biased white girl Western perspective, it 
it deals with a lot of really feminist themes, but I think that typically as a baseline for the stuff that we read here, we try and label feminist novels as more something that really shows the main character, the female kind of transcending the boundary, I think. And I think especially because she commits suicide at the end, it's really hard for me to hold this up and be like, yeah, this is a feminist novel. But having said that, I think it's a novel that's really important to read, especially if you don't know very much about the Korean War. Um, or just East like, Asian women's roles. What, yeah, or just like what war and displacement does to people in general, right? Like, I think that this is a really, really important story that deals with a lot of feminist themes. But I think that selfishly, because I need a little bit more hope at the end, I don't know if I'm going to go all the way and say that it's like a completely feminist novel. Yeah, Maggie and I had this conversation off air, and I definitely, I think I a little bit influenced her opinion of it. Because initially she was like, oh, I think this is a feminist novel. And my initial thing was like, no, it's not a feminist novel. Now after talking to Elena, I'm reconsidering. (laughs) (laughs) Aww. Well... Because I, I agree with my, my whole my whole uh, thing is first I'm like, does it pass the Bechdel test? And it like, I don't really think it, I, it like kind of does maybe with the sisters, but like, it's all about men. But now having the context that you've given me being like, this is still a problem today. I wonder, I wonder if I just wasn't reading it enough from like an activist standpoint. It is hard for me though, because Hemi herself doesn't transcend the boundaries. She kind of does, I guess, with suicide, and that is in a way empowering. Hopefully her daughters do. Yeah, it, it lacked a lot of hope for me, but I think that it was a really realistic depiction, and it's a depiction that I honestly have not seen enough of and haven't been exposed to enough of, and it's, it yeah, maybe it's just a different type of feminism that I'm just not like as exposed to because I'm coming at it from my white girl Western lens, as Maggie said. <laughs> but like, uh, even though like Korea is so economically grown and like there's so many technology and we don't go through war, I can relate to Hami and I can relate to the girls and I can relate to this kind of atmosphere that's makes girls do things so even though the world changed you know like women's rights didn't really change it's changing now well i'm i'm glad that you're here fighting the fight or you're there fighting the fight (laughs) yeah (laughs) um okay what are we reading right now i know that you said you it's okay if you're not reading anything. I got it. But Margaret and Maggie, Maggie, I'm sorry. Maggie, what are you reading? <laughs> I'm still fucking reading War and Peace. Tolstoy just goes on forever. Elena, are you reading anything? I'm reading like, you know, Love in the Cholera era. Ooh. Love in the Cholera. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> because it's COVID. Yes. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm trying to find hope in the this COVID. So, like, I'm reading love in the COVID. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad. Well, things haven't shut down there, have they? They have shut down. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's okay. It's okay now. But like, it's going just like oh. this. So, you know, like there's. 
ups and downs. But it's okay. I just have um, a <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. I'm glad that... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm driving myself insane in this apartment. I said I'm glad it's okay somewhere in the world. It's not- really not okay here. <laughs> it's not okay. okay. It's on fire. I might oh. kill my partner. I love him okay. so dearly, but I might kill him. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, at this point, I'm not going back to work until 2021. Like... <laughs> I'm going to have the time. Okay. Um, I am reading. I am reading. what? I, oh, I'm reading. Okay. So Alice Hoffman, who is the woman that wrote Practical Magic. I'm still talking about her. She wrote a book that's a, just a bunch of fairy tales, like rewritten to be more feminist, essentially. And they ca- they ha- they're rewritten to match knitting patterns. And it's an audio book that comes with a PDF of knit- knitting patterns. So that is my latest read, and I'm super stoked about it. I'm also reading The Witch's Daughter, and I'm audiobooking Harry Potter and The Prisoner of Azkaban, because you need those comfort reads in the COVID times, especially when you're reading about Hemi, Hemi and, um, you know, all of this depression, depressing stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that is all, folks. Goodbye. Oh, wait, wait. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so the next book is Does My Head Look Big in This? And who is it by, Maggie? Because I see you have the book. Randa Abdel-Fata. Okay, all right, good. All right, I'm hitting the stop on the record. Goodbye! Goodbye! You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.